Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Hello and welcome to the Saturday Brunch Show with me, Emma Williams. Today I am talking about the noughties and asking whether things really were as bad as we remember them. Fair warning, here there will be limited analysis and lots of anecdotal evidence from me. So stay tuned if you want what amounts to my own version of events. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning again. Welcome to the Saturday Brunch Show with me, Emma Williams. And the sun has finally joined us. I think the last four, maybe even five shows in a row, I've been complaining about the weather, but it has finally made an appearance, which is cheering me up and just as well, because I am here to tell you, yes, things were as bad as people say they were. Mike Cameron tweeted a couple of days ago, I've been teaching since 1995. No one has ever asked me to produce differentiated worksheets, use VAC, use group work, use sort cards, make lessons fun, talk less, reorganise the furniture in my classroom, use more ICT. He is careful to say at the end, others may have had different experiences. Well, yes, Mike, we did. To me, this is the sort of overall version of the kids are fine for me. It's what you really don't want to hear. Oh, you struggle with that group's behaviour? I don't have any problems with them. Well, bully for you. Uh, For some of us, it's been a nightmare. Personally, I have been asked to do all of those things and Ofsted asked us to do all of those things. So it's not really surprising that we were under pressure from the management of whatever school we were in to do them. So this morning I'm on my own. So please, for mercy's sake, text in, call in, go crazy. Otherwise it will be literally me for 90 minutes. Although, believe you me, I could represent Britain in the Olympics when it comes to ranting about this stuff. So don't feel too sorry for me. This will be a self-indulgent morning. In the show before me, just finished half an hour ago, we had Kate Jones and Tom Rogers debating the edgy research movement and asking how new their ideas really are and whether its impact has been universally positive. And it was really interesting because Kate and Tom are really good friends and but and slash but passionately disagree with each other on on lots of things but they found a lot of common ground as well for me the edgy research movement has been universally positive i think it's been hugely impactful i've learned an untold amount from it and also it has given me the confidence to push back against nonsense ideas it's it's really changed how I approach my job. Whereas previously, I would be stuck in my seat thinking, you know what, this sounds like nonsense, 
and smells like nonsense, but I don't quite feel that I'm able to say it's nonsense because surely this is being shared by people who know more about this than I do. Well, I don't feel like that anymore. As I said before, my mantra is now, show me the evidence. And if you can't show me the evidence, then you don't know what you're talking about. So if nothing else, just for that, this quiet revolution is something I'm really glad I've stayed long enough in the profession to see. It feels like classroom teachers are pushing back against the tide of nonsense. So I'm here to tell you about the tide of nonsense, because if you, like Mike, uh, didn't experience any of it, either because you're too young or because you were incredibly lucky in the school that you were in, um, maybe that school had the confidence to resist um, and the experience to resist. Um, but believe you me, it happened. So first thing I want to talk about is brain gym. A lot of people, if they didn't experience this at the time, don't really believe that this happened as it did. Well, <laughs> it certainly, certainly happened. So the first school I worked in was a top London grammar school, hugely oversubscribed, something like 12 to one, really difficult to get into. Staff full of intellectuals. I mean, I was an anomaly because I didn't go to Oxbridge. Okay, I had a PhD, but it wasn't from Oxbridge. So already I felt on the back foot, highly academic school. So very academic staff, many of them quite stuffy and a little odd, but that was one of the things that made it rather wonderful. In the staff room, you would actually hear people arguing about physics. Um, some of us soon put pay to that, but you know, it went on. Now, so imagine that's the context you're in, and a young and very enthusiastic Senko, new to the profession, introduces the staff to brain gym. She made us stand up and do the exercises. I mean, you can imagine how that went down. This particular youngster, by the way, is now a very successful head in a challenging school. So I'm placing a bet she'd cringe at the very thought of it right now. But this was a while ago and that's education for you. Anyway, we had this session introducing us to this wonderful concept of brain gym. I'm not sure I can remember what I thought of it at the time, but I remember finding the session quite awkward. The following week, someone, and I have no idea to this day who it was, someone pinned an article, newspaper article, to the staff room notice board. It's an article by Ben Goldacre, who is author of the book called Bad Science. And he uh, wrote this article in March 2006. Here is what he wrote. While all the proper grown-up public intellectuals like Rod Liddell are getting a bee in their bonnet about creationism being taught in a handful of British schools, I've accidentally stumbled upon a vast empire of pseudoscience being peddled in hundreds of state schools up and down the country. I'll lower you in gently. It's called Brain Gym. And it's a string of very complicated exercises for kids to do which enhance the experience of whole brain learning. 
Firstly, they're very keen on water. Drink a glass of water before brain gym activities. As it is a major component of blood, water is vital for transporting oxygen to the brain. Heaven forbid that your blood should dry out. Is there anything else I can do to make blood and oxygen get to my brain better? Yes, an exercise called brain buttons. Make a C shape with your thumb and forefinger and place on either side of the breastbone, just below the collarbone. Gently rub for 20 or 30 seconds, whilst placing your other hand over your navel. Change hands and repeat. This exercise stimulates the flow of oxygen carrying blood through the carotid arteries to the brain to awaken it and increase concentration and relaxation. Why? Brain buttons lie directly over and stimulate the carotid arteries. <laughs> now, I'm waiting to be very impressed by any kid who can stimulate his carotid arteries inside his rib cage, but it's going to involve dissection with the sharp scissors that only mummy can use. Someone mischievous and anonymous has kindly sent in the teacher's notes on Brain Gym to keep me entertained. This seems to be the master document behind the operation. Processed foods do not contain water, they announce, in what has to be the most readily falsifiable statement I've seen all week. How about soup? All other liquids are processed in the body as food and do not serve the body's water needs. It goes on. Water is best absorbed by the body when provided in frequent small amounts. If I drink too much in one go, says Ben Goldacre, will it leak out of my anus instead? <laughs> but this nonsense must all be some teeny peripheral act of madness by a few schools, surely? No, many hundreds of UK state schools, at least. So many, I couldn't name them all in a month of columns. So many, I've posted a list on www.badscience.net so you can check your child is safe. <laughs> because telling stories about fairies and monsters is fine, but lying to children about science is wrong. I completely agree with him there. Children are predisposed to learn about the world from adults and especially from teachers. Children listen to what you tell them. That's the point of being a child. That's the reason you don't come out fully formed speaking English with a favourite album. And he finishes with Brain Gym, the same teacher who tells children that blood is pumped around the lungs and then the body by the heart is also telling them that when they do the energizer exercise, far too complicated to describe, then this back and forward movement of the head increases the circulation to the frontal lobe for greater comprehension and rational thinking. That section of the article, by the way, was highlighted by whoever placed it on the staff room notice board because we'd been taught that particular exercise in our inset. So, this, I, I read Bad Science years ago, not long after it first came out, and I 
absolutely loved it. I might have to reread it, actually, because I've forgotten uh, a lot of the things that Goldacre addresses in the book. And it's a really powerful read and ever in, more important. And I'm going to have to be slightly careful here because this is such a contentious point of discussion. But I think it relates to how I feel about what's been going on with masks in schools. Because with the, the on-off decisions made by government and with the ad hoc decisions made in certain areas and with the frankly bizarre set of rules and exemptions, we've been teaching students bad science. So imagine you're a child, perhaps with a hazy grasp of what this whole mask business is about, probably with a hazy grasp of what this whole pandemic business is all about. Imagine that. And what you see is a, a, an adult, a teacher, someone whom you respect, hopefully, and that you believe knows what they're talking about. You watch that adult walk down an empty corridor wearing a mask, enter a full classroom and take that mask off. Now, believe you me, we've all had to just follow the rules because those are the rules and there we go. But it has given me enormous disquiet the way we have been demonstrating how to use a mask and when it's helpful, possibly, and when, frankly, it's just stupid. So, for example, wearing it outside when you're not tightly packed is stupid. Wearing it in a large open corridor when there's nobody else in it is stupid. And it has really worried me that in making those demonstrations, what we've been failing to do is teach them why it matters. So the fact that when you're in extremely close proximity, maybe it's a good idea. So bad science really, really, really worries me. And hence things like Brain Gym, Goldacre is absolutely right. Genuinely horrifying, genuinely horrifying. And he's absolutely right. It could be taught by the same teacher. So imagine the scenario, biology teacher, also a form tutor, asked to deliver brain gym. And that went on. So absolutely, you had the same children being taught facts about blood circulation and uh, oxygenation of the blood, taught by the same person who had to share this absolute nonsense with them. It went on, Mike, sorry. So I had to do brain gym, or, or at least was taught about brain gym in my previous school. I never used it, and I'm very happy to say that was not told to in observations. Uh, I'll come back to what I was told to do later in the show. But I happily was not given facts about <laughs> uh, de Bono's thinking hats. Uh, in fact, this is quite new to me. I only came across it um, a, a couple of years ago on Twitter in this sort of discussion with people talking about what we used to have to do and how awful it was. And this one is, uh, did escape me and I'm very happy about it. So as far as I can gather, like a lot of 
phenomenally stupid ideas. It seems to have started in the business sector. And then somebody thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we brought it into education? Uh, no. So according to Wikipedia, the premise of the method is that the human brain thinks in a number of distinct ways which can be deliberately challenged and hence planned for use in a structured way, allowing one to develop tactics for thinking about particular issues. Well, OK, I mean, I don't disagree with any of that so far. De Bono identifies six distinct directions in which the brain can be challenged. Six, apparently, no more, no less. OK, now we're getting into the realms of bit odd. In each of these directions, the brain will identify and bring into conscious thought certain aspects of issues being considered, e.g. gut instinct, pessimistic judgment, neutral facts. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to lose it here. Some may feel that using the hats is unnatural, really uncomfortable or even counterproductive and against their better judgment. So it's not explaining this very well, but the idea was that you had. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I'm even saying it. You had six hats of different colours. And each colour corresponded to one of these official modes of thinking. So in an education context, you would give the child a particular hat and they had to think and respond in that way. I know. Uh, it says coloured hats are used as metaphors for each direction. Dear God. Switching to a direction is symbolised by the act of putting on the coloured hat, either literally or metaphorically. Oh, right, so don't panic if you don't have the actual hats. You can just tell them, you're now wearing the blue hat. Ah! Anyway, so apparently blue is the big picture or managing. White, facts and information. Red, feelings and emotions. Black, negative. Yellow, positive. Green, new ideas. Ah! So having identified the six modes of thinking that can be accessed, I mean, again, presented as fact. What? No, utter nonsense. Distinct programmes can be created. These are sequences of hats which encompass and structure the thinking process towards a distinct goal. So get this, it gets worse. It's totally mental. So activity, so say you want some initial ideas, your hat sequence would be blue, white, green and then back to blue. I don't know any, how anybody did this with anything like a straight face. Apparently it was used by certain top businesses. So you know all that stuff that's now part of legend, the whole blue sky thinking and coloured beanbags and all the rest of it. No, that doesn't even come close. The thinking hats can you imagine working for a company and them insisting <laughs> on you doing that? Oh, my word. So I'm very happy that this did not touch my own school experience. But apparently for some people it did. And I'm reliably informed by a friend who trained with Teach First in the very early days that they were into 
to Bono's Thinking Hats, which as a big fan of what Teach First are doing now, I have to say that really shook my face. I was very shocked, but I think it was a brief aberration. And I think they've learned and moved beyond. Uh, good for them. If anyone has had an experience with De Bono's Thinking Hats, please let me know because I've I've not come across them. I've not been told to use them. And I'm very happy about it, but I'm also absolutely dying to hear people's own experiences with them because it just sounds utterly bizarre. Inset in general was was just awful back in the day. I mean, just mind-bogglingly awful. I really cannot stress that enough. So as I mentioned, I switched schools from a London grammar school to a Surrey-based 11 to 16 comprehensive, and that was in 2008, or as one might also refer to the era, at the height of the nonsense. That really was when all this stuff was going on. Now, brain gym notwithstanding, that was in some ways something of an aberration, something of an anomaly in the grammar school that I worked at. And as you may have gathered from the fact that someone pinned Goldacre's article up on the staff from notice board uh, anonymously, it perhaps didn't go down too well. And so notwithstanding that, the, the grammar school I worked in was fairly immune to a lot of the extreme nonsense, I think because it was so packed with, with academics who just said, well, you know, I've got a PhD in physics, you can't, I'm not buying this, this is just absolute rubbish. So it was packed full of people with um, top qualifications in their field, um, especially the, the, the science department at the um, the level of academia that was was really high, and people just just wouldn't have tolerated this kind of thing. Um, so I think we were fairly immune. And and in the last, it must have been the last year or so I was there, we had an inset that where in which we invited Paul Black, co-author of Inside the Black Box, alongside Dylan William co-founder of the whole concept of assessment for learning, which I think they now say they wish they called responsive teaching. But anyway, you know, these two were at the absolute forefront of the kind of direction that things have been going in since with cognitive science and with people talking scientific sense rather than, frankly, nonsense. So we had him in and, it, and he was truly inspiring. He was the first person I listened to at INSET who told me I was working too hard. He said teachers do too much, ineffective marking, you know, and he was really talking to us right at the beginning of, of this stuff coming out about what um, whole class feedback was all about, how to mark smart rather than writing endless uh, lengthy comments. Um, and it was really powerful. So that was my sort of one of my last experiences of inset um, at the grammar school I worked in. And then I got my new job, so I'd switched to my current school, 2008. Now, I wish to make it clear, now we are a very, very different kind of school. We've got a new head for a start. 
that always changes everything. We've also got a different senior deputy and we are very much heading in the direction of evidence-based common sense. So INSET in my school right now is really good and I give them really positive feedback. However, back in 2008, my first INSET, which is obviously my first day in my new job, because you always have INSET at the start of September, we had someone in trying to teach us how to juggle. And I wondered what the hell I'd done. Um, I think the point, I think, was learning new stuff is hard. Ooh, maybe should, we should remember that when we're teaching the kids. Okay. Um, so it, it was just that typical inset experience of you feel your life slipping away before your eyes. And you also envisage your classroom that needs setting up for the year and all the seating plans for the new year that you've not yet had a chance to do and all the endless, never-ending list of important tasks that need to be done before the students return. And you're standing in the hall with three mini bean bags trying to juggle them. Given that I have no sight in one eye, I was particularly, um, shall we say, disengaged uh, with the process. I should have told him because then he would have differentiated the task. Ah, so yeah, I was in a bit of a panic at this point about exactly what kind of school I had come to. So we had some pretty diabolical inset, if I'm if I'm brutally honest, and I think current management would would totally agree. Um, we had another guy not long after that, uh, who talked about mind maps for about two hours. God knows what we paid him. I, I dread to think. Um, so he had lots of different mind maps. He was very passionate about them. As far as I could gather, it all came down to the fact that he was dyslexic and he thought these were the answer. As we know, nothing is the answer. Um, he went on and on and on about mind maps and how important they were, which is, I mean, great. I'm not against mind maps. I think they are a useful tool, but don't go on about them for two hours. And here's another tip. Don't say, don't talk about left brain, right brain, if you don't want the science teacher who was sat next to me to twitch, because that's the point where she started muttering in my ear <laughs> about what a load of nonsense it was, uh, which was great because it just about got me through it. Um, yeah, he talked about the left brain and the right brain. Um, and he actually said, and I quote, neuroscientists think it's a lot more complicated than this, but for our purposes, it's useful. Mm, okay, so what you're saying is we're just going to carry on with the bad science because I find it handy at inset. Extremely worrying. So Jenny has just texted in. Ah, I remember hats. Fantastic had to show which hat was being used in my lesson plans. Had a laminated hat display shudder. Oh my God, wow. So that's another thing. I am going to come on to lesson planning and Ofsted expectations later in the show. I did actually, I'm pretty sure, in fact, yes, I am sure. I used to have a folder in my, on my computer 
called Ofsted lesson plans. And I actually went looking for it this morning, but I think I've deleted it because the world's moved on. Uh, I wish I'd kept it because I think it was, it was full of the ridiculously huge, over cumbersome three to four page lesson plans that we were supposed to produce for every single lesson. Uh, and it included nonsense like that. It included, you had to show you were using numeracy and literacy in every single lesson. Happy to say ours uh, at my school didn't include a hat box, um, but clearly some people did, uh, which is amazing. So anyone else have experience with the hats, please let me know. I believe you. I feel your pain. I'm just lucky I didn't experience it my myself. So anyway, back to this uh, weird mind maps guy. It gets worse. Okay, so he'd already he'd already talked about left brain and right brain, and I can't even bear to go into the supposed hypotheses behind that. We know it's rubbish. It's proven rubbish. Rubbish. It's categorical nonsense. And he basically admitted that, but then said he was still going to use it because it was handy. Amazing. Um, so if you, if you want to rile a scientist, that's, that's a pretty effective way of doing it. And the scientist next to me uh, was suitably riled. Um, but I think the, the high point for me was when he'd shown us lots of mind maps. We'd drawn our own map, mind maps, of course, as well. You know, it's not a decent inset if you haven't got through some sugar paper. Uh, so we'd done all of that. And we'd see all the different wonderful ways that you can create a mind map. So this was a good hour and a half in. And then his pièce de la résistance at the end was he showed us an image of the brain magnified millions of times and showed us the fact that neurons under a microscope look a bit like a mind map and we were all supposed to go da, da, da. therefore qed mind maps are the best way for children to learn because it looks like the inside of their brain yeah i think i nearly walked out at that point and i think now i would and then i would go into the deputy head or the head's office and explain why and they probably presumably, knowing what I do about them, shrug and go, yeah, I don't know why we got him in, totally agree. So yeah, this is the bad old days. Um, happy to say we've moved on. While I am still on left brain, right brain, and so on, nonsense about the brain, um, it would be remiss of me not to talk about vacuum. So again, those of you that were not like Mike, were not uh, forced to do this kind of thing, may not know just how bad that got. It got really bad. So for the uninitiated, VAC stands for visual, auditory and kinesthetic. And these are the three, not six, three ways that apparently people think and learn. Okay. Um, I mean, unarguably, they are ways ways that your brain and body absorb data from the outside world. But the 
um, use of VAC. Lots of people defend it as an original concept that it's not a bad idea to make sure that you're incorporating learning in different ways. Okay. I mean, just for example, dual coding kind of touches on that. So the idea that you might want to present things visually in a diagrammatic format as well as just in words. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Take the, there's lots of uh, evidential support for that. However, back in the day, uh, what you were supposed to do is help the child decide what kind of learner they were. Are you a visual learner? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a kinesthetic learner? And it was so bad that you would get the children saying, I can't do this task because I'm a visual learner. Or I can't do this task because I'm not a visual learner. It was honestly that bad. They were using that language. So we were telling students how they did and didn't learn and what they could and couldn't do from a very young age, which absolutely is mind boggling now. Jenny says, we had to survey the children at the start of the year to find out which kind of learner they were. Absolutely, so did we. Sounds great, but in classes of more than 30, this info was largely ignored. Well, yeah, exactly. So even if, even if it was useful information, which I would argue it 100% is not because it's pseudoscience, um, it's, not, it's not practical, is it? So if you've got a class full of kinesthetic learners, well, great. Perhaps send them all to a forest school. It's not, it's not going to happen in the mainstream classroom on a regular basis. Uh, and then what about your auditory learners? How are you going to cater for them? I mean, what a load of nonsense. But I think the thing that makes me angrier than any of the practicalities is just the very concept of telling children from a young age that the way that they learn is entirely individual and limited because both of those two things are categorically wrong and go absolutely against real cognitive science. So learning is not really individual. We know that actually people learn in very similar ways. We know that now. And we also know that our capacity to learn, particularly our long-term memory, is infinite. So to tell a child, uh, oh, you learn in this quirky way and not in other ways, it, I, I actually think is criminal. So I've got uh, a page from a book which I'm, I'm going to talk you through. This has been doing the rounds on the internet. I came, I came across it years ago uh, and I think sank half a bottle of wine after I'd seen it. Um, and I've been, I've been looked and looked and looked. So if someone can help me with this, I'd be really grateful. I've looked and looked, but I cannot find the source. So it's a, it's a, it's a screenshot from a book. It's quite an old book, um, I think from the 70s. And it says, how to tell learning styles by the eyes. <laughs> Teachers skilled in neuro-linguistic programming, brackets NLP, I mean, if you make it sound sciencey, then it's science, right? Say that they can often tell students preferred learning styles by looking at their eye movements and listening to them speak. Asterisk. Okay, let's follow the asterisk, shall we? Oh, it says, 
illustrations are from an inexpensive film strip cassette. Okay, so actually the asterisk isn't going to justify that statement. It's just going to tell me where he got the drawings from. Good. So back to the text. So it's got three images, <laughs> three sketches of three very shifty looking children. Uh, one looking straight ahead, uh, one looking side to side, <laughs> and one looking up to the right. I can't even believe I'm saying this. So it, next to the first picture, it says, a student who sits still and looks straight ahead or whose eyes look upwards when accessing information and who is a fast talker, count me in, is generally a visual learner. Okay, no evidence for this, nothing whatsoever, no references, um, just tells me where it got the pictures from. Second picture, a student who looks from side to side when accessing information or looks down to his offside, brackets, right-handed student looking to the left, is probably an auditory learner. He will generally speak with a rhythmic voice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, final picture. A right-handed student who moves a lot, looks to the right and downwards when accessing and storing, and is a slow speaker, will probably be a kinesthetic learner. I mean, I, I hope it's made up, but I don't think it is. Um, uh, there's another asterisk. Uh, this is the closest we get to some, <laughs> some academic references. Similar points that are covered in extensive detail in Writing the Educational Conveyor Belt by Michael Grinder, published by blah, 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 in, uh, oh, it doesn't give the date. Hmm, interesting. And then a final note, serious referencing here. Barbara Prashing says strong tactile learners can generally be identified by the way their eyes tend to look up when pondering a question. No reference, no idea who Barbara Prashing is. Uh, doesn't tell me what um, study that is from. I mean, it's just incredible how anybody could have sat and read that and gone, oh yeah, brilliant. I, I well, words fail me. Well, I'm feeling slightly hysterical now. Um, having reminded myself of this particular classic, um, I will I'll put it up on Twitter, um, on my Twitter feed for for those of you that have not yet had the joy of how to tell learning styles by the eyes. So to save myself from my own hysteria, we're going to take a little break now, but don't go away because I'll soon be back. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? 
then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A report in The Independent makes it clear that Ofqual's chief regulator believes that changes to the 2022 examinations will not advantage more able pupils. As a result of the disruption caused by the pandemic, pupils in England and those students sitting GCSE from English exam boards will be offered a choice of topics in some GCSE exams. In a speech to the Sixth Form Colleges Association conference earlier in January, Chief Regulator Joe Saxton said the release of advanced information on the kinds of topics pupils will see in their exams would not advantage higher ability pupils. This advanced information is due on February 7th and is being released to help students focus their revision to answer questions carrying more marks. It will not be provided for simpler one or two mark questions. In a statement, Ms Saxton said that she hoped that the advanced information will mean students who suffered the most disruption or those who are less able, may gain confidence to tackle elements of the paper that they might not previously had the confidence to try. In response to the comments, Jeff Barton, General Secretary of ASCOL, said, Many school leaders will have legitimate concerns about how the advanced information about exam content has been put together and how helpful it is likely to be to their students. Radio 1 presenter Vic Hope has returned to a former school in Newcastle to open its new wellbeing centre. In a report on the ITV News website, it is described how Ms Hope opened the centre at Dame Allen's in Fenham 
by stating it's been important to me in my work to raise awareness, destigmatize and signpost resources dedicated to nurturing the psychological and emotional well-being of our young people. And I am so proud that the Dame Allens is clearly doing this work so well too. Ms Hope is a human rights activist and Amnesty International ambassador and has spoken candidly about mental health in the past. The Snug at Dame Allens offers counselling, psychotherapy and special educational needs support and provides a dedicated place where students feel safe, heard and understood. With mental health and wellbeing now a key focus for many schools, Ms Hope praised the efforts made by schools to support pupils in this way. The news website Monitor reports on lessons the continent of Africa can learn about investing in education. It states that the universal lesson is that countries can no longer ignore the unprecedented learning crisis facing the continent. The pandemic has revealed what the article describes as alarming inequalities in accessing inclusive and quality education. The issue was discussed by leaders at the Global Education Summit, co-hosted by Kenya and the UK in London last week. The continent is facing some harsh realities and the summit launched a drive to increase national budget allocations for education, with greater emphasis on improving learning outcomes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to take a look at teaching online. Marmite comes to mind when I think about teaching online. I actually like it, but it's my job and I'm surrounded by gadgets to assist me. A lot of teachers hate it. If you think about it, for 90% of the current population of teachers, delivering a lesson online is something they've not even been trained in. They signed up to be in the classroom with a group of pupils. I'm not going to go into the depths of the delivery platform. That's normally a choice that's already made for you by technology leaders in schools. I'm going to give you a couple of free tools that work in a browser, so don't need installing and can be used for engagements in the classroom and easily adapted to use online. First up, we all love Kahoot. Did you know you can set a Kahoot to be self-paced rather than live? Simply click the assign button and you have an instant self-paced quiz for a homework, a starter or a progress check. If you need to take it online, share the link and off you go. If you use lots of YouTube clips and websites, check out Wakelet. Share collections of links in a meaningful way for free. My favourite use for this is to group my YouTube clips for topics. Not only are they played back with less distractions, but I can share a group of links for revision or to flip a lesson. Again, if I have to teach online, one link can lead to many. Just remember to check your school's policy on using websites such as YouTube for online teaching. If you have access to devices in the classroom, why not try Mentimeter? Create interactive presentations, take votes or build word clouds from participants' answers to improve engagement, assess learning and inspire discussion. Or, if you love whiteboards, Boards, try whiteboard.fi. As a teacher, you can see all your class's whiteboards and answers, know who's interacting and who's not. You can even show a QR code for ease of joining. I could go on and on. The idea is to test these things out when you're with your class and there's no pressure. Then, should you need to teach online, you'll feel more comfortable, there'll be fewer issues, and most importantly, you'll see if pupils are engaging. I hope you consider bringing a bit of tech into your classroom. As always, please test things work in your setting before you use them. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Hello and welcome back to the Saturday Brunch show. So this morning I am talking about 
the fact that it was really bad in the noughties and anyone who tells you otherwise either wasn't there, they're either too young or they've forgotten just how terrible it was. So I'm here to tell you it was bad, so stay tuned. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back again. So, so far, we have already dealt with um, Brain Gym, Happy Days, De Bono's Thinking Hats, and Neurolinguistic Programming, Backing Learning Styles. And an absolute highlight for me, how to tell learning styles by the eyes. So if you haven't, <laughs> if you missed uh, the first part of the show, obviously you can listen back. Um, I have now uh, shared on Twitter the page of the book that I have been discussing. If anyone can give me the source, I would be really grateful because I've asked many times and no one seems to be able to tell me where it comes from. And I'd love to know because I'd love to get a copy, get hold of a copy of the whole book because I imagine it is full of other gems. As I mentioned earlier, I used to have a folder uh, in my files called Ofsted Lesson Plans, and which I now seem to have deleted and actually uh, makes me feel that, that that we've moved on. I'm quite happy in, in many ways that I've deleted it. Um, but, you know, it does. It, it's annoying. Um, We've got somebody texting in saying, I don't drink coffee, I drink tea. Well, that's that's good to know. Thank you for your contribution. Um, I like both. If you like coffee or tea, do text in and let us know. So Ofsted lesson plans were horrendous. Apparently, I'm told, Ofsted never officially wanted a written lesson plan. Eh, I don't know. I... I, I, I don't know anybody who was an inspector at the time, so I can't confirm that. If you can, text in and let me know, that'd be great. Um, now, they definitely don't. And I hope, I think and I hope, I am now strong enough to resist management pushing me into producing them next time we are offsteaded. So last time it happened, um, Last time we were offsteaded, in other words, wasn't that long ago. And yeah, we, we were, what we were asked to produce was very much slimmed down to just who the students were in our class, who's who, that kind of thing. And you know what? The inspector didn't even pick it up. They don't want to see it. So why did I spend several hours producing it? If they want to know how I am catering for students in my classroom, they can ask me. They can also watch who, how many students contribute in the time that they are there. You know, am I just letting confident students that put their hand up answer and carry the class, or am I giving my attention to all? That, that surely that's what they want to see. They don't want to see a spreadsheet with individual scores on it. I, I, I just the whole thing is an is a nonsense and is absolutely unhelpful. 
So I really hope that I'm strong enough to just quietly not do it. I, I don't think I'd even make necessarily make a fuss. I just won't do it because in my experience, it won't get looked at anyway. So what is the point? Um, and it, it actually, it comes back to everything about how we're rethinking how we teach. For example, not spending hours tweaking your PowerPoint when you should be spending time thinking about how you are going to explain something to the class. How, what are you going to say? What are you going to tell them what's important? But I'm here to tell you what the it was like being Ofsteded back in the day. Because again, a lot of people are too young to know what it used to be like. And it was pretty horrendous. I'm not saying being Ofsteded these days is, is, a, is a joy, because it's not. It's Of course, it's high pressure. Um, it's tough. And uh, we all dread it. Let's be honest. It, it's, it's hard. However, my first Ofsted, which was probably within the first through two, two, two years of teaching, um, back then, you got six to eight weeks notice. So the school was informed six to eight weeks in advance. Now that might sound good to those of you that find the one day's notice very stressful. Believe you me, it is not. So you basically spend all of that time gearing yourself up for Ofsted. There was a massive team. So you're talking around as I recall, there were around 12 inspectors in for the whole week. They sort of took over a classroom. So some, I mean, uh, the poor sod who taught in that classroom, goodness knows how they coped for the week. They just got moved out during Ofsted week. So that must have been uh, super fun. Uh, Mrs. Saucia says, we have Ofsted next week. Oh, good luck. Um, and yeah, just be happy that it's not the old framework is all I can say. Um, they took over the, the reason they took over a classroom is they took in every single book. So all of your students had their books taken off them, which again, when you're about to be observed is an interesting decision. So all the books went in to this room and they looked at all of them. Um, absolutely ridiculous taxpayers money that went on this was insane. Um, so they read for the whole week. I was observed as I recall four times one of which was form time. So I was observed in form time, one of which was a double lesson, and they stayed for the whole double. It was English, my second subject, so high pressure from that point of view as well. I, this was quite early in my career. Um, and the ratings went from one to seven. Um, so one was excellent. And then I think it went through something like very good, good. And then I can't and I can't remember what they what euphemistic terms they gave gave to the uh, bottom end of the scale. Um, they were looking for engagement. They were really keen on that. Lots of busyness. They were looking for the teacher to be a facilitator, a guide on the side. And it was absolutely 100 percent true that you got told to talk less that was told to me by management on a regular basis and i and that's how i taught i very much believed i would i would spend as little time as i possibly could at the front and looking back it was just diabolical so i would rush through an explanation 
keeping it as short as possible, not actually unpicking it at all, just saying, well, it's sort of like this, and then off you go and get on with it. And I felt really uncomfortable right at the front of the class. And it's extraordinary when I, when I look back. So at this time, the head teacher, this was in my previous school, so back in the day when uh, Ofsted had had a completely different system, uh, I was in a different school, and the head teacher was, and I can say this, a bully. And I can say it because he was found guilty of bullying at a tribunal. He appealed. He lost. So he is a bully. He was a bully and he bullied me. Um, I'm not going to go into all the complex details as to exactly how and why, because that is seriously a whole other show. But towards the end of my time, he decided that he would mentor me for a year um, to, you know, improve my teaching. Believe you me, I'd seen him teach and it wasn't great. But anyway, he decided he was going to mentor me to improve my teaching and my results. There were concerns about my results, um, which weren't quite up to the school standard of, I think it was 89% A star to B at the time. I hadn't quite hit that target. Okay. Um, so he, he mentored me and his method, um, he obviously observed me towards the beginning of the process and, and failed my lesson. It's the only time I've ever had a lesson failed by anyone. Um, and I mean, I, to be honest, I really can't remember the lesson, but I remember thinking it was perfectly fine. Um, the students had grasped the concept I was getting across. Uh, you know, it, it was a perfectly adequate lesson, if not good. Um, but he failed it and uh, then mentored me. Now, I, I, I think I've basically wiped that process from my mind. I really can't remember any of the mentoring sessions, which is probably best because we didn't have a good relationship. I think it's fair to say. Um, but anyway, the, the plan obviously culminated in him observing me at the end of the process. And that lesson he gave a, I can't remember if we'd moved from excellent to outstanding by then, um, I can't remember. But anyway, and it was at that point that I realized that this whole process had been about him and his record and showing what a difference he made to teachers who were struggling, uh, which is the category he decided I was in. Now, the irony is that this lesson that he rated with the top rating, whatever that was called at the time, was absolute rubbish. And I mean, I don't often say this about my lessons. I, I, I work hard at my job. And um, despite that, we all have the capacity to seriously stuff up occasionally. Um, now, this lesson, I didn't seriously stuff up. It was all right. Obviously, it was, it was an observed lesson. So I put a great deal of time into it. But at I realised during the second half of the lesson that a significant number of children in the room had not grasped the concept that I was getting across. So when I did the plenary, which we all had to do in those days, so what have we learned, kids? Ah, oh, those were the days. Um, they hadn't grasped it, or a significant number hadn't grasped it. I can't remember if it was the majority 
or a significant minority. But either way, it was a kind of lesson where I think, yeah, okay, I'm going to have to do this again because this lesson has failed in its purpose. Um, and I'm going to tell you why. It failed, in my eyes, as someone who was properly reflecting on whether the children had understood what I was teaching them or not, which is surely pretty much the only you know, criteria on which we should judge anything in teaching. It failed because I was doing what I was told. It failed because I was overloading them with distraction and I was trying to entertain them. I'm a Latinist, as some of you know, and this lesson was introducing students to the verb, wait for it, possum. Yes, there is a verb in Latin spelt P-O-S-S-U-M. It means to be able. It's, it's the etymological origin of words like possible and possibility, but it is possum. So what did I do back in 2007? I used lots of pictures of possums. Of course I did. There was, there were several on every slide. So there was a possum right in the middle, you know, so this furry mammal that is native to Australia uh, was in the center of all of my PowerPoint slides. It decorated the edges of other PowerPoint slides. I had learned how to do a sort of um, gray wash background to my uh, handouts. So all of the handouts had a possum over which the students were writing. And of course, <laughs> quite a few of them didn't even know what a possum was. Um, you know, we'd moved, comedy had moved on from Edna Everidge by then. So they, children in my classroom didn't actually necessarily even know what a possum was. So not only was it one massive distraction from the grammar that I was trying to teach them, it was even more of a distraction because some of the kids were going, what's a possum? And the other kids were going, well, it's a... <laughs> so it was categorically pants. Um, and I stopped doing it fairly soon afterwards. But the head's feedback, um, which I kept for a while, but I think I've long, long since destroyed as something I really don't need to keep, uh, was all about how engaged the children were. I mean, they were engaged. They were talking about what was on my PowerPoint slides and what was on my handout. It just didn't bear any relation to what they were supposed to be learning. Uh, yeah, so in my plenary, when I tested them on whether they understood the difference between the present tense of possum and the past tense, uh, funnily enough, no, they didn't, because they were still thinking about furry mammals. <laughs> and I think that illustrates the problem. The problem was we were all spending our time decorating our PowerPoint slides and making things engaging and making them fun. And we didn't stop and think whether any of this was helping them to learn the concept that we were trying to teach them. It really was that bad. And then you get the feedback telling you it was great. And yet there was a voice in my head going, you know what? I'm not sure I know why, but that was rubbish. And it was only, it actually took me 
I think, some time over the next few years to really understand why it was so rubbish. I understood that it was. I understood, well, somehow these kids haven't grasped the concept that I've been trying to teach them. Now, looking back, I know exactly why it was a dismal failure. And I teach the whole concept now in a completely different way. And maybe one child in the class, when I introduce the word, now goes, isn't that like a fair? And you just go, yeah, it is, but that's not relevant. Let's move on. And they all go, okay, right, fine. Um, End of. And then they don't think about furry mammals again, which is the exact opposite of what I was doing uh, 10 or 15 years ago, which is, well, let's put loads of pictures of possums all over the place, because that'd be really fun, because children like animals, don't they? I mean, dear God, it just seems like sheer idiocy now, but this is what we were told to do. We were told to have fun things and decorative things. And then, of course, as teaching moved on, and now, for example, lots of people are talking about dual coding, that's what some people think it is. They still think it's about sticking a picture on something. So me putting my possum on a slide. It's That is the exact opposite of dual coding. So dual coding has uh, it, got to be focused on the concept that you are trying to teach, whereas just sticking a random picture on something is a distraction and hence creates cognitive overload. They're looking at that and thinking about the mammal. They're not thinking about what they're supposed to be thinking about. So it, it is absolutely extraordinary when you think back what we were told to do, what we were under pressure to do, what we were told to do, what we were rewarded for. Um, it, it actually makes me pretty angry uh, when I think back. So two days ago on Twitter, there was a thread started by someone called Chris Yules. Um, I don't know him, but it says he's an assistant head teacher, English SLE and lead, year five classroom teacher, massive writing nerd and Italian horror obsessive. So there you go. That's him. But he posted a tweet that um, lots of people responded to that said, what generic lesson feedback always irked you the most? Mine was that they didn't see all the children struggling. I'd always think that was probably because I taught it well. That's an interesting one because, yeah, I think it is important that children do struggle in lessons at least some of the time. And it's also important that that struggle is owned, uh, observed and made into a positive thing um that's all about resilience in learning isn't it uh for example retrieval practice you're meant to struggle slightly with it if you're just reeling something off and you can remember it perfectly that's actually when you've reached the end of the process it's meant to be hard work however of course he's absolutely right if you teach a concept really really well you should be able to move on at quite a spanking pace that actually is success um and and i have this argument in my school with we're asked to give them a low stakes test every three weeks. And there's this sort of constant debate if, if they all get it all right. Have you, is that the, the end goal? Or does it mean the test isn't challenging enough? And it, it, it sometimes infuriates me. Do you think, you know, if, they, if I've taught this properly 
and I'm simply testing, do they understand what I've taught them? If at least 95% of the class can't get it either all right or close to all right, I consider that a failure. So I really do take Chris's point. So he was asking generic lesson feedback, what gets up your nose, basically. Uh, Jonathan Mount Stevens responded that he got regularly got the feedback. It was too teacher led. And this is we were all told all the time you're doing too much talking. Yeah. And Sam Strickland, who is now a head teacher, says you, you know, about speaking too much, getting that feedback as well. Zoe Enser, one of my co-hosts, says uh, pace too fast or too slow. I mean, yeah, she says that was too vague to mean anything. And usually from people who didn't know where the pupils were at in their learning and what deep thinking might look like in the subject. So I'll tell you what one of my um, observation room 101s is being observed by people who know nothing about your subject. Now, that's tricky for me because I'm a Latinist. Now, I'm not saying I expect to be observed by a Latin teacher on a regular basis, although it would be nice, uh, but it's impossible. I'm the only Latin teacher in this school. But when I'm observed by a senior member of staff who comes into what was year seven's third Latin lesson ever and suggest that what I'm doing could have been more imaginative and challenging, I kind of wanted to slap him. Um, we've got a really good relationship. So I said, I basically, I didn't get halfway through listing why he was wrong. And he went, okay, 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 <laughs> forget it. His idea was that I could have got them to do a bit of creative writing at the end of the lesson in Latin. <laughs> so I gently explained to him that the first lesson is about telling them, oh, who were the Romans then? You know, what is this thing called Latin uh, and who spoke it? And let's just make sure that you you grasp that as a concept. What sort of time period are we talking? When did the Romans live? Where did, you know, which part of the world did they exist in? Yeah, so that's lesson one. Lesson two, oh, these are the characters that we're going to be following in the story. This is how their names are spelt. And this is what they sound like. That's pretty much lesson two. Lesson three is introducing them to some really, a really basic concept, the difference between the subject and the object. And by the way, we have to do that over around four lessons for all of the class to fully understand it. So yeah, a little bit of creative writing, writing into prose in Latin ain't gonna be happening in lesson three. So it's that complete, when somebody comes in who, and they have no idea what you do, no concept of what excellent looks like, no grasp of the fact that you're trying to teach um, a heavily inflected dead language to students, some of whom don't know what a verb is, uh, and at least half of whom have never don't recall, they may have been taught it in literacy hour, they don't recall what subject and object means, or they never understood it. So yeah, it's kind of annoying uh, having somebody come in and, and um, give their views. So more replies to this tweet. Uh, Anna Elizabeth said, in my PGC year, after a lesson where all the students had behaved, had all done the work, 
there'd been decent engagement for a boy heavy year nine class. She got the feedback. They didn't seem curious enough about the subject. And for that reason, she couldn't be graded outstanding. Yeah, I had something similar, actually. I remember a senior leader a few years ago. He's left now. Um, and again, had a very good relationship with him. But I, by the time he'd finished with my feedback, I was I left his office fuming. He gave me a good, which I was perfectly happy with. But by the time he'd finished trying to express why it couldn't be an outstanding and saying things like, there was just something intangible missing, I was really annoyed. <laughs> yeah, that sort of, you know, that kind of airy, fairy, wafty, vague, finger-in-the-air notion of it just somehow uh, wasn't quite there. You just think, oh, God, really? I don't want to hear it. I really don't want to hear it. Give me some concrete strategies of things you would like me to do differently. I'll take them on board. If they're a load of nonsense, I'm not going to be doing them. But if they are evidence-based, sensible pieces of advice, thank you very much. But don't just say, oh, I didn't feel it was quite an outstanding for reasons I can't quite put my finger on. God, no. Not having those conversations anymore, just not doing it. Fortunately, we don't have those kinds of observations anymore. I'm very happy to say. Going back to how Ofsted used to be, my previous school put me on a panel um, to be interviewed by a visiting Ofsted inspector during one of our inspections. I think this was before the whole bullying thing, because I don't think that <laughs> would have chosen me uh, later on. Um, but I think at the time it was just like, who's free? It was one of those. So they made the mistake of putting me in the room. Always an error if you don't want someone who's going to open their mouth and tell it how it is. And and I remember this Ofsted inspector saying, or no, I asked the Ofsted inspector, how would you define an excellent lesson? Because that was, was the top grading at the time. And he said, it it's hard to it's hard to quantify. It sends a, a tingle down your spine. And I, that was the point where I just completely lost it. Again, what what use is that to me? Uh, it sends a tingle down my spine. <laughs> Seriously, what what am I supposed to do with that? And if it's true, if that is true, I'm not denying that in everything, and 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 especially in teaching, we have all seen lessons like that. There are some extraordinarily gifted communicators that. Very, that not probably not every single lesson but have lessons that really are magical they're wonderful and I'm glad I've had the privilege of seeing moments like that in teaching and and I think they should be celebrated but don't put it on a form and grade me on it and tell me well I can't quite tell you what it is uh, but you haven't got it because it, it's really not very helpful um, you know, it, it's just one of those in, intangible things. And I think we we sort of know what they mean, but making that part of the judgment process, I think was their error. Um, so let's have a look at, see if there's any more exciting responses to this tweet. There's another one about pace. Farah says, it's annoying when the feedback, the feedback is given without further explanation. Absolutely. Um, 
For example, activities need chunking. No explanation. Well, again, what are they Okay. Um, yeah, uh, Mrs. Short Sorsch is worried about the tingle down the spine. Yeah, don't worry, your Ofsted inspection is not going to be like that. Um, they don't really do that anymore. And actually, that's just triggered a memory for me. Even back in the day, uh, as I like to talk about the early Ofsted uh, framework, going back to that one that I had where they were in for the whole week, I was observed four times. They, they, that was the that was the tingle down the spine conversation. Um, I was given an excellent by one of them for my Latin lesson with year 10, I think. And I was very surprised because I'd already had the tingle down the spine <laughs> conversation with the senior Ofsted inspector. I was like, well, don't think you'll be getting that in any of my lessons. I can pretty much guarantee you. Um, and I sort of, at the end of it, and this is back in the day where the inspector would speak to you at, right at the end of the lesson and give you instant feedback. That was that was also part of the process. And if they didn't, you had to go and see them at the end of the day. Oh, God, it was awful. Um, and, I, and he said yeah, it was it was an excellent lesson. I said, well, as in an officially capital E number grade one. And he went, yeah. And I said, oh. And he said, well, you seem surprised. And I said, well, I am. And he said, well, what was wrong with it? <laughs> I said, well, well, I mean, there was nothing dreadfully wrong with it. And he just stopped me there and said, exactly, and walked off. <laughs> what a dude. So, yeah, there, are some, there were some pretty cool inspectors, even back in the day, that that I think weren't buying into the nonsense. And he was just like, they, I think, understood how much it mattered, particularly in the school I was in. Um, top, 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 top grammar school, um, high pressure on the grades. Um, we were, I've only just remembered this, there was a box in the office attached to the head's room, which was where his PA was and the bursa sat and everything and at the end of each observation we had to go in and drop a piece of paper and the official line was it was just to say that you'd been observed and it was okay nothing terrible happened but of course actually it was you tell us what grade you got <coughs> oh it was so toxic those were the days um so we've got a tweet here uh somebody an as annoyed as i get about being observed by non-specialist uh, a non-math specialist telling me a middle set year nine class class weren't being challenged enough in factorising a quadratics equation. Yeah, and her response was, well, that's because I made a hard thing easy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm doing really well teaching the ablative absolute to my year 10s at the moment. They are just nailing it. And they're actually they actually look at me like I'm a bit nuts when I say, this is considered a really difficult construction. People think it's really hard. They find it really difficult. And they're like, everyone else is really stupid. Yeah, no. It's because after 22 years, I think I've finally worked out the best way to teach it. It's only taken me that long, but there we go. Um, Emmy says, I once got told that I was wrong to direct students to websites during research lesson. They should find it themselves. And it would have been outstanding if I hadn't done that. Then I was subsequently told in CPD that when using technology, we should direct them to websites. Yeah, I mean, exactly. This is the kind of mixed message nonsense that we're all far too used to. Um, and it's why you, you do have to push back. Uh, I'm, 
I hope, I hope to, that you're all in a school where you feel able to do that. And if you're not, think about moving on because it's it's not healthy. Uh, we've got another one about non-subject specialists decided to give me chemistry specific feedback in a year 13 lesson. Wow, that's ballsy. Instead of having a sit down discussion, he sent me his write up via email, which mainly gave negatives. Oh, dear. Not good. Not good at all. Uh, another bit of feedback criticised for the children putting their hands up to answer questions. The school's bringing in a policy of no hands up, but it hadn't been mentioned to me. Oh, well, there's a fine bit of communication. <laughs> Excellent. Ah, oh, well, yeah, I really don't know what to say. It's so frustrating being told you're getting it wrong when you haven't been told how to get it right. And I think that's something that's happened to me a lot in schools. Less so now, still sometimes, less so now. There was a lot of telling you you were getting it wrong and not a great deal of telling you how to put that right. Yeah. So we are going to take a one final break and I will be back after that. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit 
www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Welcome back. So I have been talking about how things were as bad as everyone says in the noughties and the first part of the tens of the 21st century. And I hope that I have persuaded you all of that. If you have not yet come across it, I highly recommend the hashtag EduWouldILieToYou. Um, and it's a very fine source. It's, 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 a, it's a, a hashtag in its infancy, shall we say, um, but it is definitely taking off. So it started a few days ago and quite a few of us were starting to share things that sound unbelievable and so potentially aren't true, but I think most of them are. So the guy who I think started it was called Louis Evans. He said, I once had an inset on cross-curricular learning where we pretended to be trees while planning a biology and drama co-teaching project. I totally believe that. I mean, that's just standard. Um, as I say, um, juggling was my first inset at my uh, current school, where we've now moved on from this sort of thing. Um, I've told you about the, <laughs> the spider diagram guy and his neurons. Um, but what I haven't told you about is the drumming. So I'm going to finish with that. The drumming, um, this was the, the the brainchild of the senior deputy at the time. He's now moved on. Uh, lovely guy, had a fantastic relationship with him. I think it's fair to say his approach to, to teaching was of the spine tingling type. He, I, I've been in one of his lessons and it was wonderful. He is a phenomenal teacher and he is without question one of the best communicators I've ever met in my entire life. He can persuade you of anything. So you'd come out of his off office, you'd go in really annoyed and you'd come out thinking, hang on, I didn't say any of the things that I was supposed to say. Uh, and, and he's persuaded me of his point of view, even though I disagree with him. He's amazing. He should be a politician. Um, so absolutely wonderful. And going on a school trip with him and watching him take the kids around Canterbury Cathedral, he actually got banned from there because people started that he was they they thought he was trying to take money off their guides uh, because he was so good that other people started joining the group and listening to him. He is he's incredible. So all of that said, I think it's fair to say that his approach to education is not very scientific. Um, and he for him, it's all about the fields. And uh, he got this guy in, wonderful guy, percussionist, brought in all of his different random instruments. And we drummed together. And I think the message was working together as a team is a really great thing. I think that was the message. Um, I was struggling, I'll admit, I was, I was struggling with why I was spending my time doing it. Uh, it, it, it. You know, wonderful as it is. I mean, I think I just stuck to the view, well, I'm being paid for this. So, okay. <laughs> but there were there were far more worthwhile things that I could have been doing. 
Um, yeah, so lots of people have shared similar edu would I lie to you uh, tweets. So I highly recommend if you want to uh, find out some of the true horrors uh, of inset back in the day, I highly recommend it. And I'm hoping that people will uh, slowly add more and more. Later today, uh, we have Mary Ocello. She's on at five o'clock live. And then we've got Miss Sade running the late show as usual at eight o'clock. So we've got a really packed day this morning. We've already had uh, Kate and Tom before me. I managed to listen to quite a bit of their show when I was supposed to be prepping mine, uh, but theirs was too good not to listen. Uh, and then, yeah, two more shows later today. So do tune into those if you have time. And remember, of course, you can always listen back. All of these shows are uplo uploaded as a podcast. So any of the shows that you have missed live, you can catch up with. If you join a show late, you can catch up with the first half afterwards. So thank you uh, to those of you who joined me live this morning, especially to those of you who texted in. So thank you to Jenny and Mrs. Saoirse. Uh, good luck for your Ofsted inspection next week, Mrs. Saoirse. I'm sure it will go really, really well. Remember two things. One, they're human. Two, so are you. So look after yourself. Till next week, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.